0: Welcome to episode 21 of Super Entertainment Presents the Intelligent Crossover Universe on the Grand Gignol Network, coming to you from Castle Wolfenstein, hosted by the TVCU crew. Joining me from parts unknown is Crazy Ivan Shabowski, convention panelist and lover of cheese. From Studio B is James Boyuchuk, CEO of 18th Wall Productions. And from Studio C, Chris Nigro, author and founder of Wild Hunt Press. And I am Robert Ironski Jr., author of the Horror Crossover Encyclopedia. We are the TVCU crew. And I just paged up on my intro, so I am just going to wing it. That hey, what what a crossover! Uh we watch a lot of stuff and we overanalyze it because we are nerds and that's what we do. <laughs> uh, so welcome, guys. I, I know because I'm also a nerd. <laughs> so
1: welcome, guys. I wouldn't be here if I was a scholar.
0: Uh, the TC crew are a team of crossovers who devote way too much time to their time to connecting the dots and officially crossovers and Easter eggs in order to demonstrate a shared fiction of reality that we call the crossover universe. <sighs> All right,
2: is that very el- well? <laughs> I'm so glad you said that because otherwise I wouldn't have a clue what you were talking about. Well, th- no wait.
0: For those who are tuning in for the first time for this episode, <laughs> and don't we know
2: apologize. What- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> For the first time, this is number twenty-one. We're old enough to have beer now.
0: I know, right? <laughs> and apparently, our our, our, um, our play play ship has doubled in the past couple of weeks. So uh,
2: viewership, readership, yeah. play ship,
0: yeah, pure. more and our, more. Our p-
3: listenership,
0: yeah, we have more listeners than than all of our
3: ships have sailed. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> holy, no, <I'm>... <laughs> holy <laughs> no ship. Readership. <laughs> he
1: had no idea how many people were out there who loved bad taste. Isn't that awesome?
0: I know.
3: that, that
2: gives Personally, me, that gives I've me always a...
3: shipped James and Chris, but that's a <laughs> whole different discussion. No, no, no. Chris and Rob all the way. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's right. They they sit up in bed at night talking about the podcast. Remember? Right. They were afraid they were going to have to move. Oh, my
1: God. Talking about it's going all the way. <laughs>
0: Actually, I was lying in bed last night thinking about this podcast, so, you know, as a normal healthy male of my age does.
1: And I was here in my own bed, trust me. <laughs> All
0: right, um, so, James, do you want to plug anything?
3: Sure. Perhaps conveniently, my shameless plug this week is also our guest book, After the World Ended by Hannah Lackoff. Listen to the rest of the episode for just why you should rush over to Amazon and buy it right now. She's going to say it better than I could. In other news, once you've listened to everything Trick-or-Treat Radio has an offer, you've got a couple hundred hours ahead of you, but you can do it. I believe in you. You should head over to 18th Floor Productions for even more podcasts. <gasps> yes, dear listener, you have an embarrassment of riches. Two shows are out right now. One is M. H. Norris's Kairos Corey, a podcast all about time travel, fictional and less fictional. And the other is Stuff and Nonsense, Beyond Wonderland, a Lewis Carroll discussion cast that's basically going through his book chapter by chapter, picking out all the Victorian in-jokes you would never notice, and looking at Lewis Carroll's biography and seeing where all the lies have creeped in over the last hundred-plus years. Wow. We'll have a few more debuting over the course of May, and then a few more scattered out over summer and autumn. And in this week's shameful plug, our semi-regular guest Micah Harris's latest novel just came out this past week, Murder in the Miracle Room. He teased us about it a little bit last time it was on. So far, I'm really enjoying it. It's pretty excellent. It's very much in the vein of Twin Peaks, and it ties into his comic book, Lorna, Relic Wrangler. Because you know you want more about a Southern Belle, sort of rednecky Lara Croft expect my review to show up on Amazon sometime soon. And that's all I've got for right now.
0: Cool. Um, I'm, I'm actually going to unconventionally jump to the next, be the next guy. Um, I, I don't really have anything to plug uh, other than um, a few weeks ago, the New Pulp Arc Awards uh, winners were announced, and I wanted to congratulate them. Many of them have been on our show or are associated with our show, or we've plugged their work on our show. Um, So, in a way, I feel like we won the whole thing.
3: (laughs) This is so true. Actually, we should mention that. (laughs) The winner for Best Novel is Mike S. Harris, who wrote Ravenwood, Return of the Dugpa. He did an entire episode about that book, which you should certainly listen to right now. Winner for Best Short Story and winner for Best Cover was Nicole Petit's book from the Dragon Lord's Library. And you should go listen to her interview just right now and come back in a minute. And... Also, the winner for I Am Blanking, there's someone else we interviewed. In Br-
0: Bad City, M.H. Yes, Norris. Yes.
3: She's going to murder me for that. <laughs> also, the winner for Best Novella was M.H. Norris. And as with the other ones, go listen to her interview right now.
1: And then come back. <laughs> yes. When we have Micah Harris on here, the term going south takes on a positive connotation. Yeah. So, Chris, what do you got? you up. Sorry if I triggered that. Um, <laughs> no major thing here to plug except to warn. I mean, announce to everyone, Wild Hunt Press is coming.
3: Bum, bum, bum.
1: Cue whatever horrific theme music comes into mind.
3: The Nigro is coming. The Nigro is coming. <laughs> the Nigro is coming.
0: Don't
2: scare him away now. Ooh.
0: And Ivan, how about you? You so, got anything to a plug or announce?
2: Well, I suppose I could mention the fact that I I just finished the update for the Ivan blog, Yay. the one that we've been plugging for the last three weeks now. I guess
0: April Fools. Of the, of the it wasn't April Fools on April
2: first. Yeah, and it's still not done really because uh, I can't get the pictures to stay in the lines. If you know what I mean.
0: The best no, April Fool's don't. Day, the best April Fool's Day post, is one that doesn't get posted in April Fool's Day.
2: Yes, it's the ultimate yeah. joke. We'll, we'll go with that. <laughs> so yeah, if you happen to you know look at the Ivan Shablasky blog on the TVCU, make sure you check out 1942 because that's where all the action really happens.
0: And that's our third most popular uh, post on the website now.
2: So it is, at least as of April 30th.
0: Yeah, as of April 30th when we recorded this. Um,
2: Hopefully people will wise up and, you know, have better taste by the time they listen to this blog.
0: Ivan, it's more popular than Doctor Who now.
2: Yeah, but I'm also more popular than Lovecraft. Right. And... That just feels wrong. It, it feels
0: icky. But Lovecraft's been moving up really Thank God fast.
2: the ponies are still blooming, though, right?
0: <laughs> I mean... That's right. Okay, so I, I, I got to say, I was at a party a few weeks ago at, um, at uh, Dynamo Mars's, and, um, and they started talking about um, bronies. And uh, and so they're all like, oh, what, what's wrong? How can people be into My Little Pony? I'm like, shut up. It's a great show. There's a lot of good writing. And then I just went back to drinking my beverage.
2: (laughs) I would have had to mention the Weird Al episode. Because when he showed up as a pony named Grilled Cheese, Mm. the party planner, and uh, he he and Pinkie Pie had a party showdown, that was truly a uh, spectacular event. And the fact that it happened on that cartoon did not in any way lessen
0: it it is a uh, well written show um, considering considering the audience it was originally aimed for um, it was too well written in my opinion
1: (laughs) I think a lot of people sold their oats on that show it's pretty cool
0: but it doesn't mean I'm going to go dressed as a pony to a con Um,
1: (laughs) you
2: can't deny what you do in
1: your bedroom though
0: yeah what I do in my bedroom is my own business (laughs)
1: <laughs> There's no horse around at the con.
0: That's right. So, actually, Eric Burnham, when he was on the show, says the bronies scare him. So, because because they come up and threaten him. Why haven't Ghostbusters met the ponies yet? Why haven't they? Yeah. That's the most demanded crossover that
1: he gets.
2: Oh, this is a sad state of affairs. <laughs>
1: I used to what, I used to read Richie Rich and enjoy it. Is that so bad?
0: Richie Rich and Casper was one of my favorite crossovers as a kid. It oh, was, was. It was Harvey's yeah, World finest.
2: It was part of the same franchise, sort
0: of. Yeah. Any, it, anyways,
1: it was dimensional <laughs> dimension crossover too. Remember, he would summon uh, Richie to the Enchanted Forest by some kind of magic. I, I clearly recall reading some issues of that that book where they would team up.
2: Well, every time that Richie met Casper, he assumed he was dreaming, which suggests that for Richie or Richie's own continuity, Casper's not real. Right. Whoa,
0: whoa. Well, th- that he's real, but he, but Richie doesn't accept his existence. Kind of so like, I mean, Bones doesn't accept <laughs> the supernatural stuff that she saw when she was in Sleepy Hollow, so...
1: So you mean every yes. time I thought I was dreaming that Katy Perry summoned me, it could be real?
0: Yeah, yes, exactly. Yes,
2: Well, Let's just say yes.
0: Well, in that case, probably was, because Katy Perry is kind of weird. <laughs> and on that note, uh, we're going to go to a commercial, and when we come back, uh, Hannah Lakoff is going to be our guest. So uh, we'll be right back. Okay, we are back. And James, I'm going to hand it over to you to introduce our guest.
3: Excellent. Hannah Lackoff is one of my favorite writers of all time. She's been one of my favorites from the earliest days of 18th Wall Productions when she submitted one of the very best short stories I have ever read. And I read far too many short stories The Mirror. She has a talent for wordsmithry, summing up those dark chocolate sentences you go back to reread again and again. She has a talent for characterization. She has a talent for taking those old stories and the cliched folklore and breathing first life into it. And I'm not the only one who thinks this. Hannah has been nominated for the Pushcart Prize and the 2013 Story South Million Writers Award. She recently published a Sherlock Holmes novella, The Speckled Band, the short story, Things Rusted on the Wheel. Her first And the short story, Things Rusted on the Wheel. Her first collection, After the World Ended, will be available by the time you listen to this episode. Hannah, let's start with something basic. How did you fall into this strange profession that is writing?
4: Well, I've pretty much always been doing it. When I was a little kid, I would, before I could even write, I would have my parents, I would tell them a story and I would have them write it down and staple the pages together and then I would draw the pictures for it. So, and then, you know, once I was old enough to actually write, I just pretty much just kept doing it my whole life.
3: Very nice.
4: Notice
1: one of the things you like writing about, Hannah, I'm judging by the mirror, is fairy tales. And I really wanted to ask you, in your opinion, why do you think fairy tales as a format are as relevant and applicable today as they always were?
4: I think it's exactly because they have such a format that they're are so relevant uh, what I really like doing with fairy tales myself and also reading about it um, are fairy tales that are retold they take that very basic structure and then do something really different with it and I think part of the reason that that's so great is that we as a culture we know these fairy tales from the time we're Little, and we think we know what's going next, but maybe that's not what happens. Um, and it's, but it's at the same time, it's very familiar, and it just allows you to really do a lot with the structure. It's, it's like the freedom comes in having a, an outline to work with through fairy tales.
1: Very awesome.
3: So since. Chris is starting to move us into the mirror. Could you briefly describe the story so our listeners know what's going on?
4: Yeah, so the mirror is actually... It's a bunch of interwoven stories that all have to do with mirrors. Some of them are familiar fairy tales, and some are unfamiliar. Some I just kind of made up, and some I took from other structures. Uh, the, The story that ties them all together is... Through the story of Snow White Mm. It's a family A father, a daughter um, The father's friend And then some assorted other characters Who are living in a caravan In the woods in Russia Um, And they're running from something And you don't know until the end That it's It's something to do It's not ever specifically explained It's something to do with um, People who are probably Nazis Who have killed the girl's mother and they've been running ever since uh she was the girl was born running from these people and then interwoven with that um is the story of bloody mary who you may know of from Mm -hmm. looking in the mirror as a kid at a sleepover um and trying to invoke this ghost um and i made the ghost be a uh, a slave who was captured and um held in a prison that has very shiny walls like a mirror and there's also interwoven is the story of um, a young girl in a castle or a manor whose parents have uh, pinned all their hopes on her and they're losing their money and they're selling all their possessions and they're waiting till this girl becomes of marriageable age so they can marry her off hopefully to someone rich and One of the things she has in her room is this giant mirror that she looks at her reflection, but she sometimes sees other reflections within it. And they're all woven in together.
3: So where did you come up with the idea of placing Snow White into what is most likely Nazi-era Russia or your radical reinterpretation of Bloody Mary? That's all I can ever think of with the characters. (laughs) Because you went into it a bit with how you see you use the structure as a freedom to reinterpret. But carry on. I'm curious what you think.
4: Yeah, well, the Snow White one is is pretty loosely based on Snow White. And as you said, the Bloody Mary one is even it's even more loosely based on it. I think what I did was I started with the idea of the mirror and just trying to think of different fairy tales that the mirror is in. And Bloody Mary is not really a fairy tale it's an urban legend and i i didn't do any research i don't know where that legend came from so i just pretty much made up my own my own thing and then the um the snow white one uh almost doesn't have a mirror in it at all i don't i don't really i wrote this so long ago that now that i'm trying to explain it. I don't even (laughs) remember specifically where the idea of setting it in Nazi Germany came, but I do remember trying to figure out in my version of it where the mirror would fit into it because they're in the middle of the woods. They have no electricity or modern anything. They barely have any belongings. And so trying to fit that mirror in, because it's not the the mirror-mirror-on-the-wall mirror. In that case, it's just a little little like pocket mirror that sort of ties into all the other mirrors
3: yes since no one else is jumping in shame on you
0: okay well actually i i, I do want to say um like I, I read the mirror when it was when it was um uh re- originally published by 18th wall and uh those who live long forgotten did i say that right For those? yep okay i always add more words to that title <laughs> um uh, anyways so i, I loved it and i i believe i gave it a, a really good review on on amazon um and i I'll say when, when i when i when i started reading the story um i was like oh I, like i was really lost in the beginning but it, like it unfolded on me it was like i i i I feel like I was intentionally supposed to be lost, because things became clearer and clearer, and by the end, it like all like made sense for me. Um, was that was was that your point, or was where am I just slow?
4: No, that's that's totally the point. You are you are exactly right. There's because there's so many different stories, and they almost don't even go together at all until you see the very very end, with you know just with the mirrors um there's really no way you could read it and not be lost at the beginning i don't think
0: right right um i'm currently writing um a once upon a timeline uh for from my next book where i for the television crossover universe book series where we uh use stories as 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 evidence um to tie things together and uh, and and the mirror is going to be one of the things I reference as because uh, mirrors mirrors are very symbolic in uh in fairy tales, uh, you got Alice in Wonderland and uh, you know Snow White and and I love that you tied in Bloody Mary because I would I would have never that would have never occurred to me, um, so I I, I just want to tell you I'm a big fan. I want to tell our listeners that you should be reading this story, uh, especially if you love fairy tales.
1: I concur, and, and I mirrors. Also, oh,
0: sorry. yeah, yeah, or mirrors.
1: Well, I also <laughs> wanted to mention, um, Hannah, Have you noticed too? as a corollary of what rob just said that the mirror motif as a form of symbolism also recurs in modern horror like the Candyman franchise the the boogeyman movie from the early 80s do you Mm -hmm. see the symbolism somehow resonating on a powerful unconscious level or something
4: yeah i think it's it's everywhere anytime you watch uh even if it's just in, like, the set dressing on, like, a horror movie or something, a lot of the times there's, like, a big, ornate, gilded mirror that somebody looks in and you expect something to come through or jump out. I think mirrors are everywhere. I think it's... They can also be symbolic of anything you want them to be, which is which is really nice to have as a tool.
3: It is. Actually, this is something I noticed when I was recently rereading After the World Ended for One Last Pass, Two of the themes you often revisit are sisters and twins, or reflections that double a person. What really draws you to this?
4: You know, I I noticed this same thing um, looking at the whole the collection of the stories as a whole, and I like didn't even realize that I wrote about twins as much as I do, and I have no idea where that's come from. I mean, there are a lot of twins and sisters and. Double identities and things like that in fairy tales. So I think that's where a lot of it started as. But even in the the Sherlock Holmes story that I was drawn to, that I rewrote for you guys, was about twins. It just sort of seems to keep coming up for me.
1: And the twin motif, Hannah didn't, if I recall correctly, didn't Snow White have a, a sister named Rose Red?
4: There's so there's two different Snow White stories. There is the there's the Snow White one. With uh, the, you know, the evil witch And the, the father who dies And the hunter and the dwarves And then there's another one that's Snow White and Rose Red And I don't know the, It's a totally separate story But her name is also Snow White In that story
3: Yeah, I've always imagined it's something like The Jack Tales where there's this character That catches on and spreads yeah. to all These unrelated stories that you can't Connect back to each
2: other Without doing a lot of Work anyway
1: right sort of like dracula today right
0: speaking of dracula i mean uh that's another uh, symbol with the mirror is vampires um you know and it you know the 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 mirror is supposed to be like a reflection of your soul sometimes you know people who like can't look at themselves in the mirror you know so you know vampires who can't uh see themselves in the mirror because they have no soul you know (laughs)
1: and what about the legend of the Doppelganger? Doesn't doesn't that involve a mirror where someone's evil side or that takes the form of themselves? Isn't that another example of reflection? Ivan?
2: Yes. Yes, it is. And, you know, the whole mirror universe concept that they exploited on Star Trek.
0: We put a lot of thought into the mirror. (laughs)
2: Far too much thought. There are a lot of uses of mirrors in uh, fiction to signify things like twins or, you know, the evil twins or just alternate realities entirely. They don't have to necessarily be evil alternate realities.
1: But serve as a gateway from one realm to another.
2: Yes, that happens a lot. Amethyst, I think, used a mirror to travel the gem world, didn't she? Mm
3: Mm-hmm. Mhm. So, turning to your Sherlock Holmes novella, what was the process of getting into Doyle's story and digging for the background in the untold story like? What drew you to that story, and also inspired you to fill it with your storytelling sensibilities?
4: What drew me to it was was exactly what you just said was that whole untold story. There's all these things hinted uh, when Helen Stoner visits Sherlock Holmes she gives this very very brief like paragraph or two long description of her life before coming to him and her life before coming to England and it's all just so lightly touched on she just sort of mentions that oh we came over from India and then my mother died and we then we lived in this manor for 10 years and that's sort of it but to me that was so interesting What happened before her sounded almost more interesting than what happened to trigger her to come to see Sherlock Holmes. Like the whole, she's 30 something, she's in her early 30s by the time she comes to see Sherlock Holmes. So she's got 30 years of this sort of crazy, unusual life that the story in its original form doesn't even talk about. And I was just so interested in digging in there and figuring out what might have happened to her and her sister and her mother and how they ended up where they did
3: and spinning off from that for the sales description i ended up deciding let's call it a feminist gothic Mm. do you consider it a feminist writing that's actually the very first thing that the person i had reading submission said this is the first feminist story i loved
4: I didn't really think about that at all while I was writing it, um, but as soon as I saw that description of a feminist Gothic story, I was like, yes, it completely is. It's, it's very gothic, and you know I was aware of that sort of stylistically as I was writing it, but I wasn't writing it that way, you know, to be a feminist Gothic story, but I think it ended up very much that way.
3: Yeah, because you really cover all of the most horrifying things that could happen to a woman in that era.
4: Yes. I, would, I, think, I think I got them all. <laughs>
3: <laughs> the only thing you missed was putting one of them in the factory.
4: Oh, that's true. Yeah.
0: Well, maybe next time.
4: Yep.
3: <laughs> wow.
2: You must <laughs> really like women, huh? <laughs>
3: Yeah, next time we'll have you stick some woman in the match factory, get Fossy Jaw, glow it the middle of the night.
4: Oh, yeah.
1: I want some Irene Adler fiction from you in the future, Hannah.
4: Oh, yeah. That would be great.
3: That would actually be really interesting from you.
1: Yeah. Hmm. I gave her an idea. Yay. Yay.
3: Yeah, if you want to write a novel about Irene Adler, I know a publisher
4: who'd take it on spec. go,
3: and I
1: know a bunch of people who would probably read it. I could think of one or two or three. Odd infinitum.
3: Yes. Sure, Chris. <laughs> okay, another one of my favorite stories of yours is Sturgeon and Petrol. Where did that come from?
4: That came from... Well, so um, well, part of what I wanted to write about that is I grew up on the coast of Maine, um, and that story in my mind is set somewhere on the New England coast. And part of what I wanted to write about was this landscape that's almost like a character. Like the sea is such an important part of that story. It comes up over and over again in all different ways, and I would I would say it's kind of a character um along with the other things that go with the sea like the father is a fisherman and there's boats and the girls go clamming and they live on this very remote peninsula and they have to go inland to go to school so a big part of that was just wanting to write that landscape and then these people just it was started with the twin girls as children just kind of came just kind of came to me and I just wrote their story
0: you have very interesting names for your characters um uh how do you come up with some of your names
4: um well in the case of sturgeon and petrol it was i wanted them to have unusual names and it was picking names that that had to do with the land Mm -hmm. or the sea you know the the setting they are yeah and a lot of the times i'll do that for characters and sometimes i'll even end up Changing the name if it just doesn't feel quite right. So I think names are names are really important to mm. me in stories to get them correct. And in, like in the mirror, all Anura. everyone's names in the mirror mean in the in the part of the story in the Grisha and Anuva part, in the caravan in the woods part, all of their names mean something.
1: I love the Nura. was a beautiful name.
4: So I just basically to find those names, I just sat on my computer on Google Translate mm. typed in things in English and translated them to Russian or else I looked on like lists of Russian baby names and what they meant until I found something that I felt fit with the characters. And I do that a lot if I want the names to mean something. I'll go on baby name websites and just browse.
3: <laughs> yeah, I've done that too. It's yeah. a really excellent trick. It is. S- Surgeon and Petrol felt remarkably I'm not sure if it's the right world. full of reality to me. Is there anything autobiographical in it? Or was it really just the setting capturing so much reality?
4: It was really just the setting. There's nothing autobiographical in that one except for the, the ocean and the landscape.
2: Okay. So it reflects the time that you yourself were in ocean.
4: Right. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Good to know. Let's turn to After the World Ended. It's this really unique take on preppers and the post-apocalyptic genre. Where did this one come from?
4: For a while, when I was like a teenager, um, and a little bit after that, I was really into dystopian things, like reading them and watching the movies. And I just read so many of them that I think that years later, when I wrote this story, they'd kind of all seeped into my brain... And I was really interested in this idea of this family who thinks the world has ended, um, but it hasn't really. And we in the story we don't know what's happened. We don't know what event has led to them thinking that the world has ended. But they they believe, or at least at least the parents have told the children of the family that the world, the rest of the world is gone, and it's just them left. And I really wanted to explore in that story what happens when they get these other elements of the outside world introduced and how it changes the characters and the relationship and also how it doesn't change them.
1: Do you have an interest too, Hannah, in the theme from based on that story of how belief can sometimes overshadow reality?
4: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, that is something that I'm really interested in. I think it's something that comes up a lot in my writing and how how strong belief is and if you believe in something enough is it, is it true? Because like in the case of After the World Ended these people believe in it so much that it really has become true if Timur who is the person who that they meet from outside of their family if he hadn't stumbled upon them they may never have left they may never have left their little world and realized that there was still more going on outside it.
0: I just read this story an hour ago, and um, I, I just want to say this was an excellent story, and I will be writing a review on this once it comes out because um, it, it, it was it made me tear up twice, um, both both times with the brother and um, um, his comings and goings, and uh, and then of course I don't I don't want to spoil it, but one moment of outrage that that that. That was in there, and uh, yeah, I got very emotional through this story. Um, so it's very, very, very powerful story.
2: Thank
3: yeah, you. that's yeah. actually why I decided to move it up to the front. One of our beta readers who went through it, her entire description of the story was: Hannah made me sob.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the the characters were all very believable, like the fam the family dynamic and. Uh, they, uh, they, they, they would just I, I like, I got to know these. It was a very short in the short story. I just got to know these these people, um, and I don't want to spoil anything. But the the moment Timur shows up, I didn't trust him.
3: <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, it really is a short story that has the depth of a novel, especially in how the characters are developed. It's almost like a. Flannery O'Connor's story, except it's about the end of the world,
0: right? Allegedly, <laughs>
4: allegedly,
0: <Maybe. laughs> and, and, and I love how the story was very vague about that too. You know, it was all from their perspective.
1: Well, it made me ask myself: Is endings maybe subjective in some way? Could that have been symbolic, like the concept of ending?
4: Definitely, and I didn't want to say what happened. I don't actually have an idea of what happened Mm. that made them think that it was over. That wasn't the point to me. It wasn't like a survival story after a nuclear meltdown or something like that. The point of the story was the family thinks the world has Mm. ended and what happens to the family, not what really happened, because it almost doesn't matter.
0: Right. right, right. That's not the point. There's so many
2: different disasters that might make someone think the world is ending that yeah, yeah, you can leave it up to the reader to decide. Exactly. Do we have anything Personally, else to say? I think about it's going to be the robot revolution, but you
3: know. <laughs> <laughs> Do we, we have, have any last things
2: that could...
0: Yeah, I don't I... I have a lot more I could say about this, but I but I really don't want to spoil it for for our listeners. I'm in the same boat. Yeah, That's yeah. Why I'm B- not because quite sure. because there is just so many like I could like talk about this little scene or this scene or something, but I'd really rather the listeners when they read this read it for the first time. You know, it, it,
3: just read it. We <laughs> <laughs> got Rob, enough.
1: name you- more?
3: Yes. Yeah. Rob, do you want to? Talk about the dead do you not come back at night I saw you had a bit about that in your notes oh
0: yeah you know I I, 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 I stumbled across that when I was when I was doing a little research on you initially and because um, um, I say like, oh that had some awards and, and stuff um, it was a really beautiful story about a little girl and her 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 dead aunt <laughs> and their relationship um, I, I I don't know it, it was just a nice little Um, little story, um, I, I don't have, I don't have much, a lot to say on it other than it it was, it was just, it was just a really sweet story for, you know, what would you would think would be a creepy story. Um, or maybe I just like creepy things and think they're (laughs) sweet. Um, (laughs) it could be a little bit of the the Adams family in me or something, but, uh, yeah, I, 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 I thought it was a very, um, very sweet story for for uh, a girl and her dead aunt story <laughs>
4: <laughs> Yeah, that story happened when I I decided I wanted to try to write a ghost story and that was what came out. It wasn't even really a ghost story.
0: No, and uh, No. Yeah, but you know, and and that's the thing, you know. So so in the f- in the few stories I've read of yours so far, like Things unfold, like you really like to um like start off the story with a with with an unclearity and, and and make it clearer as things go on, um, which I really like so, so i've enjoyed every story I've read of yours so far for that reason so for our listeners, if you feel that you're confused in any of her stories, just hang in there <laughs> it's well worth it.
3: She will give you the answers.
1: Yeah, yeah, it has the payoff each time. And she will jar your emotions. That yeah, I like how yeah. the story. Yeah, that Rob just referred to how it deals with the idea of loss. If only if we lost someone we care about, we didn't really lose them. Their spirit was actually there with us instead of somewhere where we can't communicate.
3: Yeah. You know, maybe this is what we should have for the marketing copy, Hannah. Hannah will rip your emotions apart <laughs> even more than Pixar. Yeah, yeah. Wow, yeah.
0: Right, forget Toy Story 3.
1: <laughs> Someone will come back from the dead to read this volume.
0: And, and, and The Dead Do Not Come Back at Night, that was the one that was nominated for the Push Card Prize in the 2013 Story South Million Writers Award. Um, just so people know, that's, that's the
3: one.
1: Congrats, Hannah. Yeah. Thanks.
3: Okay, I'm going to take a stab in the dark here, and I may be completely wrong in every way. But is the worst part inspired by Evil Dead?
4: Yes, and other movies in that genre. But yeah, the Evil Dead, pretty much that was the inspiration for it.
3: Okay, because that was a really unique idea to actually look at how Ash or heroes like Ash would be
2: traumatized
3: Mentally for you Mentally destroyed. Yeah. Yeah,
4: because yeah. <laughs> yeah, the movies always end with it's a happy thing that the police came or whoever, the hero got out and all the zombie friends are dead and the hero gets to go back home, but like you just said, they're going to be traumatized by everything.
1: And you do handle emotion well in your stories. That's a recurring thing.
3: Yeah, him going back to the cabin with everyone was legitimately heartbreaking.
4: Yeah, I just, I wanted to, I was thinking about, like, the the sort of realistic repercussions of what would happen. You know, if a, if a teenage kid comes back and says, all my friends turned into zombies and I wrecked the car, the adults are not immediately going to be like, Oh, everyone turned into a zombie. It's it's more like, what did you do? What happened? You know, we have to get the police there and investigate. It's, it's not an automatic. Oh, the zombies are back. In the real world.
2: <laughs> yes. Yeah. And they might not take your word for it that they were already undead zombies when you chopped their heads off. You know. Right. They're yeah. just going to see the decapitated bodies. <laughs>
0: The first sentence of the story, uh, I, I didn't read this story. I was crunched for time. Um, plus, it was the worst part, so I was like, I could skip over It's the worst part. But um, <laughs> the first, so I'm reading the first line now. After it was all over, he had to go back and tell their parents. You know, they never, that never comes up in the, you're, that no. never comes up. Like, yeah, uh, this is what just happened to your kids, you know? Wow. How do you explain that? <laughs> yeah. And that, that if they're going to believe it.
2: No, they never believe it. I mean, the only time I've really seen it dealt with was in uh, some of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. And it's always about how the parents just overreact and blame the kid's friends.
0: Rod goes to and jail. And
2: the kid's friend winds up in jail and dies, you know, horribly like everybody else. But it's not the whole survivor's guilt thing being dealt with. It's just another setup for another victim.
4: Right. Yeah.
2: So yeah. really the, the traumatized victim come survivor is, is the part that I like.
1: How do you just say, um, I swear, ma'am, her, she was w- walking dead when I sawed her head off, you know? And how does the emotion um, of the parents go dealing with that kind of thing when you have to explain them? How how could someone accept something like that? I say they can't. You know, he- the
2: first step. Go ahead.
0: Sorry. Well, one of you no. speak. All right. <laughs>
2: I was going to point out an episode of Supernatural, the first one to have zombies in it. Have a, a zombie that uh, they had an awful lot of trouble dealing with because there was too much lore about zombies. Nobody knew what the true story was, and trying to deal with the the dead girl's relatives, uh, it, it caused a lot of problems for everybody, and it didn't deal with it nearly like what your story is about, but it did at least touch on the idea of people trying to handle the situation. You know, this was my dead fiancé or this was my dead daughter or whatever. Of course, in that case, like almost everybody turns out to be bad guys. and <laughs> You don't really care if they die. But still, it, it was there. There was some emotion attached to it.
3: An attempt was made.
2: An attempt was made.
1: Hannah, were you inspired at all by that sequence in Dawn of the Dead where people were actually sheltering their previously alive relatives because they could not accept that they were dead?
4: No, I didn't think about that one at all.
1: It's an interesting sequence, I think. It's uh, (laughs) a...
3: so let's talk about the mall this is one of the stories that has always captured my imagination and i didn't know what to do with it until i read the end for our listeners it's a series of eight very short stories some dealing with the koi in a mall pond some dealing with fairies or i should say changelings some dealing with babies and strollers that aren't too closely attended and some just dealing with a stone boy who has a girl with a crush on him. So, it's not so much a question of where did all of these come from, but how did you decide to fit all of these different puzzle pieces together and then do it into a satisfying home?
4: Well, so when I wrote this story, I had just, in the last couple months, gotten a new job that was not working at a mall, but I'd been working at the Gap in a pretty good-sized mall for about six months, and I like to say that's about six months more than I ever wanted to work at Gap in my life. Yeah. But spending all that time in a mall um, clearly really influenced the story. It's just its own little, almost like its own little ecosystem. You know, there's not really any windows to the outside, and everything is very contained, and the everything's very fake, which to some of the people in the story that's appealing and to some of them it's not and to some of them it's not fake it's real but there's weird things in malls like a a weird fake fountain in the middle of the floor that's all made of plastic but has real fish in it so i think i was really just exploring all of these different mall elements and at the same time interspersing like the more fairy tale changeling elements and they just sort of smushed them all together and this is what came out
3: I see Yeah and it led to one of my favorite sentences from you Everyone smells Strawberry and smoke But they never find the baby
0: From the shortest of the stories In the Yes two
3: sentences long Yeah,
1: Very evocative
3: So forever maze A boy in a rat maze this is one of the stories that I just read, and I was both heartbroken and interested where that came from.
4: This one is actually, I actually, it's based on a dream that I had, a terrifying dream, um, when I was in, I think when I was in high school. Um, and it was this dream about uh, a, ra- a maze, like a little, a short, probably like two or three foot maze. In a supermarket parking lot, like in my hometown, um, and out of that came the the story of the you know the boy racing a rat in a maze that was that was like the imagery that came to me first, and how you know like and like I say this in the story, it's really impossible you can't have a boy in a maze and a rat race in a maze at the same time. Mm.
2: You can if you offer enough cheese.
4: (laughs) But you can't. It's not a fair comparison, which (laughs) is, in the story, this is what the father tries to do, is have his son race his prize rat, and what he ends up doing is building this giant two-story maze so the boy can race on the bottom and the rat can race on the top, and they can finally figure out which one is smarter and better at mazes. That's really the image that really stuck with me from this crazy dream that I had. Um, just very creepy and claustrophobic.
3: Yeah. It reminded me a lot of uh, what's the title? It's the novel about the autistic boy who imagines yeah. things are worse than they are. The, I can't remember
2: the title. <laughs> it's been elsewhere.
3: No. It was the dog who does not bark in the nighttime. Oh, it's, the
4: curious incident of the dog in the night? Yes.
3: Night. It reminded me a lot of that, in the I way it was told.
1: Uh, yeah. Well, I don't know that story. It's
3: like it's right dwells, sorry. It. <laughs> and let's talk about the last story in the collection, The Path of Bones. The first time I read it, I knew this would be a perfect way to end the collection. It's this sort of journey, I'd guess. And the path changes to stranger and stranger things. It's very dreamlike.
4: Yeah, I just wanted to explore exactly what you just said, like a journey. Um, in my mind, and I don't know if this is a spoiler, I don't think it is, um, but in my mind, this main character is dead and, is, and has to take this journey through the afterlife to sort of get where, get to the end point where she's going to spend eternity Um, and I was playing with some mythological ideas in this story but I'm really focused on the, the imagery of the path itself
3: I hadn't put that together but that makes a lot of sense that throws the story into a whole new light because for whatever reason i didn't think metaphorically and i was looking at it more as a fairy tale like one of the grim traveling tales
4: yeah which is kind of kind of the same thing in a way that's true that yeah. is
3: very true they usually have all sorts of metaphorical depth in those as well
4: yeah but, which you can read into or not however you want
3: yeah the yeah. mark of a great fairy tale <laughs> And as we're starting to run up against the end of time, let's talk about Moon Friend. And the returning imaginary friend. Okay. <laughs> oh, I guess I should actually ask you a question. That would be a good idea. I just love all of the different ways you imply the moon, like with the name Junie, but... Where did this one come from in particular?
4: So this is a a really old story that I'd actually written a version of when I was in high school. Um, and I think a lot of that came from... I mean, the characters in it are, are pretty young. They're like young teenagers. And I think some of it came from, you know, being a young teenager who read a lot of fairy tales and um, thinking about how that could, you know, it could be... As a kid, I read a lot of those stories where the kid is all of a sudden whisked away to this magical land and has all these adventures and then at the end gets returned home and everything is fine and there's, they just go back to normal life. And I feel like this story is it's almost the inverse of that. Junie's life starts out really terrible. She has this awful mother and a terrible living situation and then her, her friend... Her next door neighbor, who we don't really know what he is. Like you were saying, he could be imaginary, he could be real, he could be this magical being. Um, and when she meets him, things get better, sort of. And that, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's sort of the, the yeah. opposite of the traditional kid gets whisked away to a magical land story.
3: Yeah, it reminds me a lot of. John C. writes One Bright Star to Guide Them, which is sort of the inverse of what would happen to the kids returning from Narnia. Mm. It plays on a lot of the same themes, like coming back from there, things won't be better. Things might even end up worse because you went there. It's a really interesting set of tropes that I'd love to see more authors examine, really.
0: this kind of so, re- remind me of um, the worst part that we just talked about how it takes the traditional story and that says yeah but then what happens
4: yeah that's one of my, that's one of my favorite things to do with my writing Especially, you know I like exploring fairy tales but then bringing that into the evil dead and just kind of thinking about but what else would happen or what would really happen or what else could happen
0: so um, we are just about out of time. Um, I hate to break up the party, but um, that, that's my job, <laughs> <laughs> um, is is to be the timekeeper. Um, so before we end, I wanted to ask if there's any other past, present, or future work that we didn't discuss uh, that you'd like our listeners to know about, or anything you want to, we did talk about that you want to replug.
4: Well, I think we pretty much covered it all, just replugging my book that's about to come out. That's Really the, the big one for me right now. The after the world ended. It's coming okay. out. When is it, James? Very soon?
3: Very soon. In fact, it should be out by the time this episode comes out.
4: Well, perfect.
3: Alright. In fact I'll be submitting the files to Amazon and various other places tonight. So
0: go to Amazon right now. And buy it. <laughs> right now. And, and by the
2: time next week's episode airs, we should have the Irene Adler story, right? <laughs> oh, sure.
4: I'll get I'll get started
0: right away. <laughs> And where can our listeners follow your projects on social media?
4: Um, I have a Wix site that's just my name, Hannah slash writing.
0: All right. Well, thank. And if you
4: Google me, I'm the only Hannah Lackoff who comes up on Google. So I, 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 did, I did Google. <laughs> I did
0: Google you and uh, found found your bio and all your works at uh, that site. So. Creeper. <laughs> it's research <laughs> well thanks uh, thanks for being on Hannah. yeah
4: thanks for having and, me yes, um,
0: thank you so much yeah um, and uh, I, I hope everybody else enjoys your stories as much as we did um, and we're going to go to commercial and then we'll be right back thank you Hannah thank you alright that's about all the time we've got uh, I want to thank Hannah Lackoff for joining us again um and M.H. Norris says hi. That's, a, that's our feedback for the episode. <laughs> she just tweeted me. Um, join us next week when we'll be joined by author Sam Gafford. Uh, before we end, I want to thank our sponsor, Mammoth Studios, and their upcoming remake of See You Next Wednesday. I'd also like to thank our real-life crowdfunding sponsor for this week, Patrick Rayall. And a special thanks to Tiny White and the Deadites for our show's theme music, Leaf on a Stream. Thanks to all who listened. Remember to subscribe to Radar Show on iTunes and leave us a review if you like us. Uh, if you didn't like us, don't worry. I'm sure you got better things to do. And uh, as always... We want to hear
2: the reviews <laughs> if you don't like us. Maybe we can
0: change. No. We
2: won't, but you know... I'm too stubborn. Can also just make fun of you on the air.
0: <laughs> and as always, everything happens somewhere. Good night.